Okay, we'll open your Bibles to James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. James 3, 13 to 18 is our text. And I've titled our message for tonight, Are You Wise or Are You Worldly? Are you wise or worldly? And as you know, we've been looking at this overarching theme of being all in for Christ, really what it means to be wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus, what it means to have a heart of integrity before the Lord so that our profession right, um, is matched by our conduct and the way that we practice the Christian life. We've been looking at this, and we've already seen that we need to be all in Chapter 1 of, of James, verses 2 through 12, we need to be all in in the way that we respond to trials, trusting in God. We need to be all in in our pursuit of holiness, chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. We need to be all in, chapter 1, verses 19 through 25, in the way that we respond obediently to the Word of God, being doers of the Word and not merely hearers who are self-deceived. We need to be all in in fleshing out Real, genuine, sincere Christianity, chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. We need to be all in or wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord in avoiding the sin of partiality, right? Chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. We need to be all in and being committed to pursuing good works or deeds in the Christian life, not as the basis of our justification, but as the response, right, to our justification and what God has done in our lives. And then last week, we saw that we need to be all in with regards to the use of our tongues in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, that we need to use our words for good, for the edification of people to the glory of God, not for evil, to destroy and to harm and to hurt other people. And now today, we want to see that we need to be all in for Christ in the area of our pursuit of wisdom, in our pursuit of exercising true, biblical, Christ-like wisdom as we're going to see. This is related, this particular passage, don't be so quick to disconnect it from chapter 3 verses 1 through 12 by the way, it's interconnected. Last week we looked at the respectable sin of the tongue and now closely connected to that particular passage verses 1 through 12 here in James are these verses 13 through 18 where we see that wisdom is to be seen in our conduct and in our relationships. And in essence, this passage right here goes to the heart of the problem in terms of our wrongful use of our words and of our tongues. How so? In that the reason why we have an issue with the tongue, the reason why we have a struggle with our words, is because we often lack wisdom. We don't speak from a heart of wisdom. But the more that we grow in wisdom, the more careful we're going to be with our words. And so James is going to contrast here God's wisdom versus worldly wisdom that we might rightly distinguish between both and pursue God's kind of wisdom. That's what we're going to be exhorted to do in this particular passage. And obviously, it should be pretty clear to all of us why this is a crucial, important passage. It should be very straightforward. We should all desire to grow in wisdom. Amen? In fact, the book of Proverbs is all about that. It's all about exhorting the listener or the audience of the need for wisdom. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. One characteristic of a fool is that he or she doesn't run toward wisdom, doesn't cherish and treasure wisdom. 
Conversely, right, the wise person is somebody who runs towards knowledge, runs towards understanding. The book of Proverbs is all about that, applicable for all of us as believers. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 13 says, Happy or blessed is the man or woman who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. You want to be truly happy in life? You want to be truly blessed in life? Then grow in wisdom. Pursue wisdom. Cherish and treasure wisdom. Incline your ears to understanding. Moses, in Psalm 90 and verse 12, perhaps the earliest psalm written in the Psalter, Psalm 90, in verse 12, he prays, Lord, teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of, what? Wisdom, he says. I've learned some things, that God is eternal, man is temporal, God is just, and he will punish all sin. So Lord, teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Teach us to live in the light of the brevity of life. Help us to be people who present to you a heart of wisdom. And then the wise preacher of Ecclesiastes says, in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 16, that wisdom is better than might. That wisdom is better than strength. Wisdom is to be sought out more than anything in this world. So the Bible, brothers, is full of scriptures that exhort us and instruct us and highlight the need to gain wisdom in the Christian life. And so since wisdom is something we should want to pursue in the Christian life, here are three realities, three realities that James wants us to know that we might grow in wisdom. Here's reality number one. Ready? It's this. Know that true wisdom is distinguishable. Know that true wisdom is distinguishable or recognizable. In other words, you can see it in someone. James wants us to know right off the bat that the person who has true wisdom, that wisdom will be evident. It will be distinguishable. It will be detectable. It's going to be observable in your life. You can't say you have it, and yet your life says something different, right? Either God is lying or you're deceived about your true spirituality, your true spiritual maturity. Look at this in verse 13. He asks, who is wise and understanding among you? Underline that, among you. Note that he says that. He could have just said, who is wise and understanding? Just uh, individual people exhorting us as individuals. But he says, among you. Because so much of the emphasis, right, previous uh, to this passage, has been on their interpersonal relationships with one another. Not just on the vertical, but on the horizontal and how they treat one another. Here again, the same thing, right? It's going to be, the focus is going to be on their relationship with one another as a community of believers. That how wisdom is, uh, uh, how you, you live out a life of wisdom relates, um, in, uh, should be seen in your treatment of other people and how you love other people and how you serve other people. Wisdom impacts, in other words, their interpersonal relationships and it's the case for us too, brothers. Again, this is important because so often we draw that false dichotomy, don't we? Between here's my Christian walk with the Lord, and yet when we survey our relationships with one another, there's a different message that is sent. There's an inconsistent message that is sent. Our horizontal relationships look pretty detrimental, right? There's a lot of harm and hurt happening there, and yet we claim a great devotion with the Lord. James over and over again calls us to the carpet on that one. He says no, right? How you treat other people matters before God. How you treat his children, your brothers and sisters in Christ, matters to the Lord. So that's why he emphasizes here, who is wise and understanding among you? And he's asking an honest question, isn't he? Who amongst you is the sense 
thinks him or herself wiser understanding. On the one hand, it's a sincere question to be taken at, at face value. Who thinks or fancies himself or herself as wise or understanding? He's challenging this with a sincere question, but it's also a, a diagnostic question, isn't it? Because he wants us to pause and to consider here, brothers, the nature of wisdom and what wisdom looks like in the Christian life if you have it or if you're deficient in wisdom. That you can't just say with your lips that you're wise, even if you don't say it verbally that way, but you think it, you think that you're wise, but you don't live it. James says, true wisdom is, is shown. True wisdom is seen. True wisdom is visible to the watching eye. And here's how. Look at verse 13. By his good conduct, let him show his works. See that? Conduct, show his works. Yet again, James, is, his continual drumbeat has been this. Don't just say that you're wise and understanding. Show it. Show it in the way that you live. That's an imperative verb, by the way. There, let him show his works. That's an aorist imperative. It's a command. The sense is, show by the way you live, by your good conduct and works, the character of your claim to so-called wisdom. Show it. He commands us. This is kind of like the old game of show and tell, right? When we're growing up, or maybe our kids have been a part of that, if you're a parent, where we would show something to an audience and tell about it. My little girl, Chloe, one time did that. She took her favorite little stuffed animal, and there was a show and tell at church. And so she went before the kids, and then she melted down and had a major tantrum and all of that, <laughs> right? But we understand that game, show and tell, right? Well, in the same way, James is inviting us to a type of theological game of show and tell here. But in this case, our lives are what tell a story. The way that we live, our conduct, speaks to our, the legitimacy of our claim that we are wise in understanding. He's been exhorting us to this throughout the book of James, hasn't he? Look at chapter 1 and verse 22, brothers, just to be reminded of this. Chapter 1 and verse 22, he says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. In other words, show what you claim to know by the way that you obey the word of God. Show what you claim to know. Chapter 2 and verse 12, look there. Chapter 2 and verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, he says. God is concerned about you showing both, speaking and acting. Show what you claim to know by the way that you speak and by the way that you live. Right? Chapter 2 and verse 26. Notice, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. In other words, if your faith is real, then spirit-empowered works and conduct will follow. You will show what you truly claim to know. Show it. Show it by the zeal of your good deeds. This has been his drumbeat throughout the letter. That your practice should match your profession, that your walk should match your talk, that your conduct must match your claim. And in this case, that if, you're, if you claim wisdom and understanding, then you must show it by your good conduct and by your good deeds. You see that? Show that you truly know him. Show that you're truly wise and understanding. By the way, what's the relationship between those two words, wise and understanding, in verse 13, some ask? What's the relationship there? I think they're, they're somewhat synonymous. I think the point is together, they have to do with applied practical knowledge. 
Wisdom and understanding is applied practical knowledge. Biblical wisdom and understanding has to do with possessing the ability of taking what you know and skillfully applying it by making God-glorifying decisions consistent with the Word of God. Possessing the ability of taking what you know and skillfully applying it practically and making God-glorifying decisions consistent with the Word of God. That's basically what um, wisdom and understanding are pointing to here. By contrast, think about this. During this time, in the Greco-Roman world, they valued a type of knowledge that was intellectual, that was very secretive, that was very much uh, only possessed by the elite class, and there was a boast of a type of knowledge or wisdom, so to speak, or understanding that was really had no connection to any type of morality or moral standards, as evidenced by the gods of the Greeks, right, who were no different than sinful human beings. So this is very different. James is saying, oh, no, 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 people. God's wisdom is far, far different. In fact, look at the qualifier. How so? How are these works to be done? Verse 13, he says, in the meekness of wisdom. You see that? That prepositional phrase? In the meekness of wisdom, these are to be done. What does that mean? That true wisdom is recognizable and distinguishable in that it shows itself in conduct and in good works that are done in meekness. In meekness. Now to the Greeks, meekness was weakness, wasn't it? Meekness was weakness to them. But God's definition of meekness is is strength or power under control. If you were to define meekness, it's strength or power under control. Meekness has nothing to do with weakness. Meekness has nothing to do with incompetence. Meekness has nothing to do with being a coward or cowardice, displaying cowardice in your life. It's strength or power under control. In fact, no one was more meek or gentle than who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Than Christ. And yet he was and is the most powerful man who ever walked the face of this planet. And so to be Christ-like, brothers, to be Christ-like is to be gentle and meek. That's why Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the meek. Sometimes we think that if we're, we're known for gentleness, if we're known for meekness as, as men, if we're known for our gentle approach to others, even as we say the truth in love, right, then we're being weak or we're being pushovers or some of us maybe even think, I'm being somewhat feminine if I display things that way. But it's actually the opposite. It's the harsh or abrasive man, the man who is dictatorial, who is the insecure and weak man. You understand that, right? When you and I are harsh and we're abrasive, we're dictatorial, we are manipulative, we are controlling, we're actually displaying something different. We're showing that we are actually insecure and we are weak rather than gentle and meek and, and, ha- and displaying power under control. The man who lacks meekness or gentleness is the man who lacks true inner strength this type of man who feels he needs to take matters into his own hands by resorting to a dictatorial, manipulative, intimidating kind of approach to others. Think about this. And so note, true wisdom is distinguishable. If you claim it, you will show it by your life, right? True, the true wise person will show it by their conduct, by their deeds done in the gentleness of Wisdom. And obviously, this challenges again our definition of what spiritual maturity means. 
You want to get a litmus test of how spiritually mature and stable you really are? Ask yourself, is this evident in my life? Is wisdom truly, as God defines it, evident in my life in good deeds, in gentleness? Otherwise, you have a lot of room to grow, and I have a lot of room to grow. Amen? Now, we need more help, obviously, because often we act like we're confused and like we don't know the difference between true and, and false wisdom. And so James is going to help us here further by helping us distinguish between the two, between true wisdom and false wisdom. So secondly, he tells us that we need to know that counterfeit wisdom is demonic. Write that down. Know that counterfeit wisdom is demonic. He doesn't mince words here. We've already learned that about Pastor James, haven't we? He doesn't mince words. Worldly counterfeit wisdom is demonic. It's evil. Don't be fooled. And watch this. You can tell counterfeit wisdom apart by exposing its, its heart and by exposing its habits. These are going to be sort of subpoints under this point, okay? He first helps us by exposing the, the heart of worldly wisdom. We first see the heart of worldly wisdom exposed here. Look at verse 14. By way of contrast, if you have in your heart bitter jealousy, by which he means that insatiable motive or, or sinful desire to get something from someone else which doesn't belong to you. If this is what drives you, he's saying, if this is what motivates you, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, what's that selfish ambition all about? All about? Well, in, this, in, um, in that, that period of time, the sinful device was used to, of politicians in those days who always wanted to be right by, uh, for their own selfish purposes, for their own personal goals. Times haven't changed, right? It's still the same way. What James is saying is that worldly, devilish wisdom is the counterfeit type where you have people who always want to be right. This is the person who is driven by jealousy. This is the person who has this insatiable desire to win at all costs. And as I told you last week, this can display itself not just out in the world for us, where we are more concerned about being right, where we are more concerned about winning the arguments. This can show itself also in our home life, in our marriages with our children, grandchildren, extended family, etc. Right? This can show itself also in our workplace. This can show itself in the church which is also James's point here, the among you kind of relationships. This is the person who is combative. This is the person, brothers, who is contrarian, always opposing, always looking for the other side. Not just because he wants to be, he or she want to be biblical, biblically faithful, but it's because they're always trying to pick a fight, pick a bone with somebody, being driven by a selfishly ambition type of an attitude. This is why back in James chapter 1, in verse 19, remember he said, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. He says, don't be so quick to react. Obviously, that's the first application there is with reference to the Word of God, right? Don't be defensive with regards to the Word of God. But that applies to all of life by way of principle. Don't be so quick to react. Don't be so ready and eager for a counterattack before listening to the Word of God or listening to some, so, something truthful that somebody else may be sharing with you or exhorting you about, whether in the context of the home or in the context of the church. Be quick to hear. Listen. Listen. And so these two hard devices are the opposite note of humility and meekness, right? 
And he adds, if you're practicing these things, do not boast and be false to the truth. In other words, don't claim wisdom and yet be characterized by these things. You're not being honest with yourself. And first and foremost with God. You are lying to yourself. This is contrary to the truth. This is contrary to your profession. When this is not seen, meekness and gentleness are not seen in your practice. And then in typical James fashion, he lays in on them, lays into them, doesn't he? Look at verse 15. Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. This is not of God. This is not divine. This is not heavenly, in other words, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. James says, don't fool yourself. If you're characterized by jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, that is your motivation in the way that you operate. That is your mindset. There is nothing heavenly, nothing spiritual, nothing holy about this so-called claim to wisdom. One pastor comments here, quote, In descending order, James arranges his three descriptions of false wisdom. In contrast to godly wisdom, which is heavenly in nature, spiritual in essence, and divine in origin, the wisdom of the arrogant is from the world, the flesh, and the devil, quote-unquote, or end quote, which is a reference to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15, right? About not loving the world. And so note, brothers, James is putting this in black and white for us, that we need to rightly distinguish between the real and the counterfeit that is demonic and devilish kind of wisdom. Now, having exposed the heart of worldly wisdom, notice also how he exposes its habits. We see the habits of worldly wisdom exposed here, of demonic kind of wisdom. What does this counterfeit wisdom result in? Look at verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, that's the internal heart attitude or motivation, here's the result. There will be disorder and every vile practice. This is what worldly, devilish, counterfeit wisdom looks like. It's going to be characterized, note, verse 16, by disorder, which has to do with an environment that is restless, that is tumultuous, whether a home life in the home, whether in the context of the church, or in any other context for that matter. Disorder has to do with the, an environment that is restless or unpleasant or unsettled. It's a culture or an atmosphere which lacks peace, which lacks harmony, which lacks unity. It will be a chaotic and corrupt situation that you will find yourself in. And you're going to be the greatest contributor to that. If we are men, we are the leaders, right? We are the perspective shapers in all of those particular contexts. Especially in our home life as the spiritual shepherds in our home. As the father goes... So does the rest of the home, right? So he says, you display jealousy. You're known by selfish ambition in your interpersonal relationships with other people. This is the kind of, of culture that you're going to find yourself in, a context of disorder. There will be also, notice, verse 16, every vile practice. The sense there literally is good for nothing, Every vain and worthless type of conduct flows from jealousy and selfish ambition. He says it's going to be a place where your conduct is going to be corrupt, polluted. Now remember, this, this is, a, first of all, an exhortation to us personally, brothers, right? To cultivate a different kind of an attitude. But then it fleshes itself out in the way that we relate to others within the community of believers, 
So think about this. Our failure to address our sinful hearts not only hurts God vertically, right? Not only is it an affront and an offense to our Heavenly Father, but it also hurts and harms others on the horizontal level, beginning with those in the context of our home. And then flowing out from that particular context. And so James is saying, if you're driven by jealousy, selfish ambition, then it's not going to lead to a, a helpful, edifying environment and an atmosphere, the among you atmosphere. Verse 13. There isn't going to be a sweet harmony that's going to permeate that particular culture or context. This is why a church's spiritual culture and atmosphere is, is so important, isn't it? Even here at, at Compass, part of the reason why it's so important for us to apply all of the Word of God, is, but especially the book of James and these exhortations and the way that we relate to one another is because we want to continue to foster a, a culture here at Compass, a spiritual atmosphere full of unity and harmony and edification. Amen? That's what we want to do, brothers, amongst one another. It's to be a healthy environment where we can flourish, where other men can come in amongst us who are believers transferring from another church where it was an unhealthy environment, and they come in here and they know that this is like a, a beautiful, gracious greenhouse where they can actually grow and flourish in the faith because of the type of spiritual culture and atmosphere that we are fostering. Think about that. Right? I love that picture, by the way. The church is like a, like a gracious greenhouse where the temperature, the climate, the soil is of such a nature that plants can grow, right, in a greenhouse. Same thing in the church. The, the church is to have the, the, those wonderful conditions that are healthy where people can come in and grow in wisdom, where these types of attitudes and actions exist rather than chaos and corruption and every evil practice. We want to be the opposite, brothers. And so the first two realities that James wants us to know that we might grow in wisdom are that true wisdom is distinguishable, right? It's recognizable. Don't just say you have it. It should show itself in your life. Two, counterfeit worldly wisdom is demonic, thus to be avoided. And thirdly, write this down. Know that Christ-like wisdom is desirable, Know that Christ-like wisdom is desirable in verses 17 and 18. We have to end there, right? We have to end there, brothers, by looking at the positive. Here's the, here's the contrast and the type of wisdom that we want to have in our lives, that we long for, that we want to cultivate amongst us. Look at verse 17. But, contrast, the wisdom from above, that is divine, from heaven, from God, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and insincere. Beautiful list. If you are truly growing in wisdom, these are some of the virtues that are going to characterize you. Perfectly? No. Who amongst us is perfect? Raise your hand right now. Liar, right? You were thinking it, some of you guys, weren't you? Raising your hand. None of us are perfect. It's about progression and progress in the Christian life, not about perfection. Amen? None of us are perfect, but these are things that we should characteristically be fighting for, brothers, by the grace of God and in the power of the Spirit to be seen in our lives and in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so as we walk through these, I really wanna, want you to place your heart on the, on the table, so to speak, and say, Lord, as we walk through these, do these characterize me? Are these characteristics here, these virtues, if you will, evident in my life so that 
Christ-like wisdom is being seen by my my brothers and sisters, and they're benefiting from such Christ-like wisdom. Let's define some of these terms. Notice he says in verse 17, right? It's first what? Pure, right? Pure, which has the idea of, of innocence or moral blamelessness. Innocence or moral blamelessness. Paul uses the same word in 2 Corinthians 11 too, when he speaks of presenting the church as a pure virgin to Christ. That's powerful, isn't it? We want to be pure that way. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is purity, by the way, uh, purity of heart in, in secret, but also purity of heart in, in practice and in public toward others. Our secret life of purity and holiness and set-apartness and holiness should then be manifested in the way that we display purity towards one another. And so, by way of implication, I mean, think about this. Every single one of us tonight should be able to say, you know what, I am presently right now a one-woman man. I am a one-woman man. I'm married, I'm devoted to my wife, young or older, and I'm cultivating a heart of purity, and there's nothing in my conscience that I'm not clear about it with regards to being pure and being set apart and devoted for her in in, in that particular covenant. If that's not you, then there's something that you need to repent of, right? Because we're called to walk in purity. That's wisdom right there. You say, well, I'm not married. You should still be a one-woman man. Because nothing magical happens at the altar one day when you put a ring in a woman's finger. If you are not pure now, you're not going to be pure then. Nothing magical happens. Amen, married men? You should be a one-woman man right now, pure. So this is purity of heart in secret, but also in practice and in public toward one another. Notice he also says peaceable, doesn't he? Peaceable. has to do with this inner tranquility. This inner tranquility based upon our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It is finding our rest in God, thus experiencing this this subjective sense of inner tranquility because of who we are in Christ. And then that inner tranquility manifests itself in our outward relationships, where we are not picking a fight with other people, where we are actually practicing harmony and sweetness with one another. Again, the focus here is on our relationships with others in context, isn't it? Not just our relationship with the Lord, but with others. The person who is constantly in inner turmoil, not trusting God, brothers, listen to me, will constantly be the person who is blaming others, taking it out on others, and not being peaceable. If this is you, recognize, ultimately it's about you and God. You have a God problem, not an other person problem. Well, my wife does this. Yes, preach it. Our wives are imperfect too, amen? Well, this person over here does this and does that. Yes, that's true. But ultimately, you understand in an ultimate sense, we have a God problem if we are not walking in peace before other people as well. And we need to flesh that out, obviously, by confronting things head on, speaking the truth in love with one another. Are you a peaceable man? Motivated by the peace that you have with God through Jesus Christ, and then it manifests itself in the way that you interact with others. Notice he also says gentle. Gentle, doesn't he? Which has to do with, with a forbearing spirit. It's a different word from the, the, uh, the word in verse 13, meekness. 
It's the attitude that says, I'm not going to die on every hill. I'm not going to die on every hill. It's a willingness, listen to this, brothers, to, of yielding to other people. There's a willingness in your life to, to yield to others instead of, of cultivating or fostering this attitude of strictness, of stubbornness, of rigidity on secondary matters that have nothing to do with clearly delineated biblical principle. They have to do with preferences with one another. The application of the Word of God in multiple ways. You are always fighting it out on secondary matters. Everything's a big issue. Every little hill is a mountain for you. You have a combative spirit. He says, open to reason. Notice that. Open to reason, which means that you're easily persuaded. Easily persuaded about what? Uh, on matters that are not essential matters. You're yielding. You're reasonable to speak to. You're reasonable to interact with. You're willing to, to defer as opposed to digging in your heels about every single thing. We can do that in our marriages. Amen? Man, how many of us aren't constantly just, I need to win this argument with the wife. She needs to know how I feel about this. Listen, she already does, right? She already does for those of us who've been married for a long time. She just doesn't agree with you. And of course, you know, submission doesn't mean agreement. Our wife should still follow us as long as we're not calling them to sin or to do something that is against the word of God. Submission doesn't equal agreement. But oftentimes, brothers, even that, even a good desire that we might have that our wives would arrange themselves lovingly under us can become an idol in our lives. So that we're always fighting it out. We're not reasonable. We're not deferring. We want to win every single battle with our spouse. You notice that these first four virtues are the opposite of verse 16? Of that of a jealous, selfishly ambitious, disruptive person, of a vile person? The opposite of that list right there. But he's not done. Notice that he expands with a second set of virtues, doesn't he? In the middle of verse 17, if you're cultivating Christ-like wisdom, you will be known by being a person full of mercy, he says. Full of mercy. Which reminds me of, of James 2, 1 through 13. The impartial person is a person who is full of mercy. And then James caps it all off by saying, mercy triumphs over judgment. Remember that? Mercy triumphs over judgment. A godly, Christ-like, wise person is full of mercy. You're not self-righteous. Characterized by that. You're not a critical and judgmental person. You're a person who grants mercy as you've been shown mercy, brother. As you have been shown mercy by God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, another reference, allusion, indirect allusion. I told you in our introduction how many times, multiple times, James alludes to something Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that? Here's another one. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. He also adds, look at the text. You will be full of good fruits, implied full of good fruits. I love this. I love that he puts them together, right? It's just full of mercy and good fruits. He puts them together grammatically because of this, because there's a tendency for, with some of us to think that we are merciful individuals, but then we don't flesh it out in good fruits. That is in good works toward others. 
And so these like Siamese twins here, right, refer to good works or deeds flowing from a heart of mercy. If you're a merciful person and you see the need in somebody else, you're not the person who says, hey, hey, call me if you need anything, right? Some of us mean that when we say it, but oftentimes we don't really mean it. But then because when somebody calls us and they actually are saying, hey, can you follow through with that? Well, when I'm not available, you know, I'm really busy right now. Let me find somebody who can meet that need, right? He says, no, full of mercy and good fruits. Mercy and meeting needs go hand in hand. We show our merciful hearts by serving others and meeting the needs of, of others. Finally, look at the text. He adds, impartial and sincere. Impartial and sincere are evidence when there is Christ-like wisdom there, brothers. Impartial means unwavering, undivided in motive or loyalty. How many times have we not talked about that issue, right? Of the dipsukas man that is divided, the two-souled man. He says, no, 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 no. He says, you need to be impartial, unwavering, undivided in motive or loyalty. And related to this is sincere, he says. See that? Sincere, which means un- unhypocritical. Literally, anhupokritas. Anhupokritas. Which means an actor... But then there's a, uh, the sense here is don't be an actor. Be a non-actor kind of a person. He says, be the opposite of an actor. Be genuine, in other words. Thus the ESV, be sincere, he says. Don't be a person who puts on a mask and you pretend that you're somebody else. One commentator says about these two here, about impartial and sincere, quote, the person who is characterized by a wisdom from heaven will be stable, trustworthy, transparent, the kind of person consistently displaying the virtues of wisdom on whom others can rely on for advice and counsel, end quote. Are you that type of a person? I like that. Remember, all of these have to do with wisdom shown in our interpersonal relationships with others, right? They are who you are fundamentally in your DNA, you're cultivating these things in the power of the Spirit of God, by the grace of God, but they are also to be fleshed out practically toward other people. Otherwise, you have no claim to this. Anybody can say, well, I, you know, I'm doing these things toward the Lord. The Lord doesn't need your actions, right? Your brethren need your actions. And your Father wants you to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's wisdom applied knowledge skillfully in a God-glorifying way toward others in the way that benefits others. These are so different, aren't they, than, the, than worldly wisdom brothers, where there's so much backbiting and backstabbing out in the world. We are to be different in the church. Listen to me. We are to have each other's backs in the church. Amen? And that doesn't mean some sinful, corrupt loyalty, Right? This means that we need to have each other's backs in the sense that our goal should be to see Jesus formed in your brother. Sometimes that means you come alongside of them to comfort them. Sometimes that means you come alongside of them to encourage them. Sometimes that means you come alongside of them to give them a spiritual kick in the rear. Amen? I need that from time to time. And I've had many, many brothers and sisters in the Lord who've done that to me over the years. We all need that. We need to have each other's back. That's what we're talking about here. So different than the world. And in chapter 4, in the next passage, James is going to call them out on their worldliness, isn't he? Remember that? In the climactic peak of the letter, James chapter 4, verse 4, he's going to say, you adulteresses, 
You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? He says, you know what your problem is, people? Professing believers, your problem is you are worldly. And one of the ways that, the, that worldliness displays itself, brothers, is in a lack of harmony amongst us. Where instead, instead of peaceableness, this is like a war zone, right? So let's not allow that to happen at Compass. I personally, as one of your pastors, have been super encouraged by the level of degree of unity in this church. Very thankful. And I don't know everything that there is to know about everything here, but I'm thankful that in our men's ministry in particular, there's, I don't really see massive issues going on where there's major division happening. There's always issues here and there. Amen? Every church is, in, is imperfect. None of us have arrived. But into the future, my prayer as one of your pastors, is that we would be unified, peaceable men. Amen? Now let me ask you, can you think of a parallel passage which gives a similar list of virtues? Anyone? What's that? Colossians 4? Yeah. What about the, the Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit passage? Remember that? Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit, right, is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul says, against such things there is no law, and those who have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires have crucified those things, right? This is so similar to that. Similar virtues. Those who are truly born again will manifest the fruit of the Spirit to some extent or another progressively in our lives. And so listen, true godly biblical wisdom has profound effects and impact on the way that you live. Otherwise, don't claim to be as spiritually mature as you are, as you claim. You will be able to distinguish between those who are real and counterfeit by the fruit of their lives. Finally, notice, notice how back in verse 16 he said that worldly wisdom results in chaos and corruption. Well, what's the result of this divine Christ-like kind of wisdom? Look at verse 18. He says, and a harvest of righteousness, circle that word, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Interesting construction there. But in many ways, it shouldn't surprise us. What he's saying is that the person who is a, a peacemaker by displaying these qualities will be a fruitful kind of a Christian. That people who display these types of attitudes will be very productive in the Christian life, right? They will, they will reap a harvest of righteousness of that which pleases the Lord, which is right in his eyes. Beautiful. Here's an, yet another allusion to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? Sons of God. God's children are characterized by peacemaking instead of disruption and upheaval and chaos and corruption. Right? Our job and our duty, brothers, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Or really, write this down. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. But there in verse 3 of that particular chapter of Ephesians 4, it speaks about the fact that we are to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're not called to create, right, unity or peace in the Christian life or in the Christian church. We are called to preserve the unity and peace that Jesus, by virtue of his life, his perfect life, atoning death, and resurrection, his victorious resurrection, has already accomplished. Amen? He has accomplished an indestructible, eternal peace and unity amongst us 
And we are to be op- operating in functional oneness, fleshing it out, preserving, not creating unity and peace. That's what he talks about. We don't create peace and unity. We preserve it. We protect it. We fight for it by the grace of God. And so before we conclude here, we should probably end where we started and where this passage started, right? Look at verse 13. Who is amongst us wise and understanding? Who is wise and understanding among you? Which one are you today? Are you the the worldly wise operating that way even as a believer? Are you characterized by jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart and then habitually as an argumentative, combative, contrarian type of a person? Is that you, brother in the Lord? Will you contribute to a a war zone mentality in your home life and in your work life and in your church life? Where people even in your workplace, full of non-believers, view you as that type of a person? You're a contrarian type of a person. You've blown your testimony there. You're not salt and light anymore. Is that you? May I say to you, repent today. Repent of that. As somebody who is in Christ, confess it to the Lord, right? Seek forgiveness from the Lord. Make it right. Own your sin and seek renewal in your life. Are you the worldly wise? Or are you the truly wise? The Christ-like wise? According to this passage. Or by God's grace, you strive to live your life in the presence of God. Pastor Kempis, I'm not perfect. I know my weaknesses. Oftentimes I'm proud. Oftentimes I fail. Listen, me too, brother. But you can say, you know what? By the grace of God, I'm seeking to cultivate inner integrity, even if it, to my own hurt. I'm seeking to do that by, the, by God's grace. And then this inner integrity shows itself in, in my relationships towards others. And when we fail, right, and we all do, amen? We all fail in one way, some way, shape, or form. But we're quick as humble men, as meek men. We're quick to own our sins and to confess them to our wives, to our children, to our co-workers even, as a testimony of God's grace to them and of Christ, and especially to our brothers and sisters. We own those, those things. I hope also that as we walk through James... But you're, you're learning a crucial key principle of the Christian life, and it is this. Sound doctrine, when applied, leads to sound living. Did you hear that? Sound doctrine, and put this in caps, when applied, when appropriated, leads to sound living. Healthy teaching, healthy doctrine, when put into practice, leads to healthy living in our lives. Doesn't mean it's going to be trial-free, suffering-free, conflict-free, but that we are applying God's Word and, and, and we're going to be living healthy lives that glorify God and that are a blessing to those around us. Amen? May we be those kinds of, of men, brothers. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you once again for this wonderful Scripture. Lord, to think that there were some in church history, shockingly, who didn't Believe that James was inspired scripture. Oh Lord, what a profitable book for our hearts. Calling us to the carpet so that we do not take our salvation for granted. Thank you for the security that we have in Christ. That our salvation, our justification is not based upon anything that we bring to the table. We simply bring our sin to the foot of the cross. 
Thank you for the atoning work of Christ and that he said it is finished. We don't add or subtract anything to his atoning sacrifice. But we thank you for that this same Christ who saves us from the penalty of our sin by faith is the same Jesus who no longer wants us to live under the power of our sin. And one day we thank you for the hope that is indestructible and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for us, where we will be delivered from the presence of sin in our lives. Oh Lord, as sinful men saved by grace, we long for that day, Lord. Father, I pray that as we go away tonight and we discuss these things, that Father, we would be brutally honest with ourselves before you with regards to those areas of life that we need to make right. Thank you that there is always a second and third and fourth infinitum chance with you, Lord. That forgiveness is found again and again at the foot of the cross because of Christ. And so, Lord, help us to remember that the the pathway to Christ-exalting change is humble, broken repentance before you and before others. That we might continue to become more and more like Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.